We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. For the last 20 years, Russia has been described as this heavily corrupt. I mean, mafia state isn't just corruption. There's corruption in most countries. This is way, way far deeper and a stagnant, corrupt country. Now, if that's the case, why did Western experts assume that the Russian military would be exempt from this corruption? Well, no. Um, if, the, if the country is a mafia state, that, that impacts on everything in Russia, including the security forces, the military. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Taras Kuzio, who is a professor of political science at the National University of Kiev Mihaila Academy, and he is the author of two books, Russian Nationalism and the Russian-Ukrainian War, which came out earlier this year, and his second book, Fascism and Genocide, Russians' War Against Ukrainians, which is coming out earlier next year. On this episode, we discuss the latest developments on the Russian war on Ukraine. Without further ado, let's get going. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Dr. Taras Kuzio, welcome back to the podcast. How are you? Uh, good, thank you. We live interesting times. We do indeed. We do indeed. Now, in case there are listeners who didn't listen to our previous interview, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm a British. I was born in Yorkshire, a father Ukrainian, mother Italian. I had covered the Soviet Union and former Soviet Union for over 30 years. Yeah. Uh, since uh, doing sort of PhD work, I've written a lot of uh, articles, academic media articles, as well as books. Um, I've just literally yesterday sent off a new manuscript on the invasion called Fascism and Genocide, Russia's War Against Ukrainians. I was planning to retire, kind of gradually retire, shall we say, uh, moving back to England from Holland uh, yeah. this year, but Putin hasn't allowed that. No, no, indeed. He's keeping us all awake at night at the moment, isn't he? Yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you very much for all that. So um, I suppose the first question I would ask really is just what what, what are your uh, views on the kind of current situation on the ground? Um, how many lives have been lost since the war started? Because I think when we last spoke, I believe it was like the end of February, early March. And, uh, and a lot, an awful lot has happened since then. I just wanted to sort of get an idea of how sort of things are, what the state of play is in Ukraine at the moment. There's simply no question that the reason why Russia is firing huge numbers of missiles is not only because uh, Putin feels threatened at home, mm. he looks weak in the face of uh, Ukrainian victories, but also because uh, Russia is, in effect, losing the war. Um, Russian soldiers uh, are either unwilling or afraid 
to face Ukraine soldiers head on. And so they preferred always artillery or missile strikes. Um, the, the number of Russian casualties is just astronomical. Uh, this morning, as of this morning, you, the Ukrainians are claiming 63,000 Russian dead. Uh, the American sort of Western estimate is lower, but it's interesting that the American estimate keeps creeping up to the Ukrainian mm. um, over the last few months. Now, we all, uh, military analysts always say wounded is two to three times more than killed. So that if really we are talking 50, 60,000 dead, then the numbers incapacitated from the war are anything approaching 150,000. The American mm. estimate mm. is was a few months ago 80,000 dead in the world. Mm. Now, if we compare this to 7,000 US dead over 20 years in both Iraq and Afghanistan, we yeah. can see the difference. And also uh, Soviet casualties in Afghanistan over 10 years of 15,000. So this is on, a, on an astronomical level. On the Ukrainian side, uh, Zelensky's talked about 10,000 Ukrainian dead. It's probably a slight underestimate, but certainly far fewer than the Russian. The biggest, a, a large number of casualties were in the early part of the summer when Russia was using just uh, indiscriminate artillery fire in the Donbass region, typical Russian tactics, and Ukraine really had nothing to respond with. Um, and um, that's, of course, changed on the battlefield with the arrival of German, Czech, Norwegian, and in particular, American heavy uh, howitzer-type artillery, and in particular, the HIMARS. That's changed it in favor of Ukraine because those have, those have targeted um, Russian arms dumps, so they don't have the artillery shells to mm. fire at the Ukrainians anymore. Um, in terms of civilians killed, um, Aside from Mariupol, um, anything up to 20,000 or so killed, uh, particularly women and children, because the men really are in the fighting forces. Ukraine has about a million mobilized um, security forces. The port of Mariupol, which um, was completely flattened by, by Russia in the spring, um, there the estimates are literally up to 100,000 dead of a pre-war, pre-invasion population mm. of 450,000. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. This is, um, to put this into context, this is about five times more, or even more than five times more, killed in Mariupol than when the Nazis occupied Mariupol in World War II. Wow. Um, and this is a country allegedly coming to denazify Ukraine. So the, the number's horrific, um, hence why there's a lot of um, claims that this is actual actually war crimes yeah yeah well the ukrainian forces have been doing an amazing job i mean it's shameful to say it now but i think the expectation was very low at the beginning of the war of how well they would do but um they've humiliated the russian forces from what i can see i don't know if you have any sort of thoughts observations on how well the ukrainian army have have done what was interesting about um about this war about this invasion is the degree to which um both Western experts and the Kremlin, so-called Russian experts, Russian government officials, were on the same page in both exaggerating Russian military power and in, in belittling Ukrainian attempts at resistance. It's interesting how um, uh, many Western, particularly American, um, 
the so-called experts. I remember uh, the Pentagon and Western governments were getting their advice from 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 these experts, and so they were saying the same things. They were saying as well, like with Russians, that Ukraine would last two to three days because Russia would um, impose air superiority over Ukraine and the Russian forces would simply overwhelm Ukrainian um, and Russian forces even brought with them parade uniforms to do a victory parade on the main thoroughfare of central Kiev. That never happened. And I think the the reasons for this are very deep. Um, I think there's a lot of... Uh, the, the, what we have in the West is that experts on Russia believe that they are experts on the entire former Soviet Union when they're not. It's the only region of the world where experts from one country believe they're experts on many countries. I mean, if you're an expert on Brazil, you're not an expert on Latin America. If you're an expert on Thailand, you're not an expert on Asia. Um, but, but for some reason, Russianists think that they're experts on Ukraine, and, they're, and this has shown that they're obviously not. They underestimated um, the um, already existing um, training and reforms in the Ukrainian military, which have been taking place over the last 10 years. In effect, Ukraine already had the embryo of a NATO military force by the invasion. And also, they underestimated the degree of um, civil society, volunteer groups, and they're all important working in the background because many of those people either supply uh, forces or help in different ways, like with emergencies and, and rescue. But they also joined the Territorial Defense Force, which is 200,000 people. And I think all of that was underestimated. This had catastrophic consequences because Western governments did not want to send uh, weapons to Ukraine prior to the invasion, believing that because Ukraine wouldn't last longer than three days, it would be a waste of time. A lot of them were under, also under the influence of what happened in Afghanistan with the catastrophic uh, withdrawal. So the only things that Western governments talked about sending were things like javelins and stingers to use by partisan forces under a Russian occupation. Of course, all of that changed as soon as they saw that Ukraine could hold its ground. Um, the other reason why um, the Ukrainians are doing well is twofold. And Thankful, thank God this is, this, this is the case. Firstly, again, Western experts ignored the fact that Russia is a mafia state. Um, the first time Russia was described as a mafia state was in 2010 by a Spanish judge. The document's available on WikiLeaks if any of your listeners want to go and find it. For the last 20 years, Russia's been described as this heavily corrupt. I mean, mafia state isn't just corruption. There's corruption in most countries. This is way, way far deeper, and a stagnant, corrupt country. Now, if that's the case, why did Western experts assume that the Russian military would be exempt from this corruption? Well, no. Um, if, the, if the country is a mafia state, that, that impacts on everything in Russia, including the security forces, the military. And because of that, the Russian military simply is... Um, has been shown not to be the second most powerful army in the world, as, as the Kremlin claimed. Um, on, for example, and there's countless examples of this, but for example, on questions of logistics, the, the, the Russian state cannot supply the Russian army in the field. Um, and that in turn has lots of consequences, for example, for morale. So that's one aspect why the Russian military is not doing very well, why it has to rely on things like missiles as opposed to 
fighting in the field. And the second reason is because of national identity. I was very uh, flummoxed um, just prior to the invasion why Russia only mobilized 175,000 troops. Now, usually an invading force needs to be at least two to three times more than a defending force to overwhelm it. For example, 1968, the Warsaw Pact invaded Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia had then had a 10 million population. There were a quarter of a million troops which invaded Czechoslovakia. Simply overwhelmed the country. Yeah. It was impossible to put up resistance. Um, so 175,000 invade a country far, far larger than Czechoslovakia and with security forces far, far bigger. So at the time that Russia invaded, Ukraine had probably about 400,000. So there wasn't even enough to take on Ukraine's security forces, then might occupy the whole country. The reason why Russia only mobilized a small number of troops wasn't just because they didn't have them because of corruption, but also because um, Russian, as the Americans call it, the Russians had drank their own, their own Kool-Aid. <laughs> They'd begun to believe their own stereotypes and myths about Ukraine that if they invaded, kicked out this small clique of Nazis that had come to power during the Euromaidan revolution, Zelensky, the president, would have fled, and these majority of the, of the population who are little Russians would greet them with flowers. This was the mythology that the Russians believed in. And by the way, most of them still believe it. Incredible. So... If you're in, um, launching a so-called special military operation just to remove Nazis from power and, and believing that the population in general is going to support you, because they're all really Russians, right? I mean, they're, they're all the same ethnic group. Um, Putin's been saying Ukrainians and Russians are one people for over a decade. Then, then you're, you're simply mis, misconstruing Ukraine, showing you don't understand the country. And this gets onto a topic we'll talk about later about the Russian intelligence agencies have nothing to do with intelligence. Um, and I think all of those factors combined together have shown to what degree um, the Russian, Russia has pursued a very, very bad military campaign. Other factors as well, you could, you could add more purely military factors are Russia has never been successful in imposing an air superiority over Ukraine. Now, this is one of the things that Western experts said that Russia would do within the first few days. It's never been able to do it. And in fact, in the last couple of months, Ukraine dominates the air. Can you believe it? Ukraine with this, it's kind of like this Battle of Britain small air force combating Russia, but Ukraine's dominating. Secondly, Western experts kind of played up Russian military reforms. And we, have, we now see that they were bogus. And also that a lot of the money put aside for those reforms was stolen. And so Russia has never been able to launch um, a combined military operation using battalion tactical groups, air force and artillery. There's never been a combined arms operation in Ukraine. Thirdly, um, at the beginning, Russia, Russian forces had three different commands. One for Kiev, one for Donbass, one for southern Ukraine. There's no unified military op military operational command for Ukraine. And that also dealt a blow to Russian military tactics and strategy. And I'm still I still don't think today there is one overall um military kind of there is a commander, but whether he 
um, operates a kind of a unified approach is difficult to see because Russian military um, goals in Ukraine keep changing. I mean, is it to occupy Ukraine? Is it to remove the government? Is it to denazify? What is the goal? Or is it just to hold on, as it is now, I think, just to hold on to what they've occupied? Um, because they can't really, they don't simply have the numbers to occupy the country. And everywhere they go, they are unpopular. I mean, there's no place in Ukraine, really, where Russian military forces have had local support, so which they expected to have. So hence the farce of the uh, so-called sham referendums a few weeks ago. Um, and the annexation of those territories, which lasted a couple of days before huge portions of them were liberated. Um, I think in the, uh, on a final note, I would say that the way to look at this is similar, and I've written about this, is similar to why Azerbaijan won its war against Armenia in 2020. It's the same reasons. You, Azerbaijan and Ukraine have NATO-trained forces. They have... Western military equipment, typically, for example, Turkish drones. They're facing Armenia and Russia, who are trained in still in basically Soviet military style, i.e. very hierarchical. And they're using outdated Russian military equipment. I mean, Russia, this supposed great power, had to beg Turkey for drones. Turkey refused. And then he had to go to Iran because Russia never invested like Armenia in drones, it's sort of stuck to this Soviet mentality that tanks are the thing to have, these big tanks. So I think um, you've got the same same dynamic. Um, Azerbaijan, Armenia, Ukraine versus Russia, a modern 21st military force fighting a military force stuck in the 20th century. Um, and you see this with military tactics in Ukraine, and you saw that with Azerbaijan. Um, just even the differences on how special forces Ukraine, Ukraine and Azerbaijani special forces were trained by NATO, and took, for example, Turkey, US, um, Russians, Russian so-called Spetsnaz, um, operate in a completely different way. They're they're inflexible. They they operate as a as a kind of a um, a, a pack as opposed to like individuals. Um, they're very hierarchical. In the Kharkiv uh, counteroffensive, Russian officers fled. Those Russian soldiers didn't know what to do. And and so they just they either were killed, um, they they were captured, or they simply ran away, leaving all their equipment behind. Ukraine has captured more military equipment from Russia than the West has supplied to Ukraine. Um, and so, um, whereas in in a kind of a NATO Ukrainian military uh, operation, there are NCOs. There are no NCOs in the Russian army. Um, they did begin to introduce them after 2008. This was stopped in 2012 when Putin came back to power and he installed Shoigu. Neither Shoigu as defense minister or Putin have any military experience when they're running the campaign. So um, those NCOs and sergeants, I mean, they they are able to, to fill the vacuum if the senior officers are fled. Um, and um, And they also provide um, autonomy. Um, Ukrainian forces, just like NATO forces, don't need to be told instructions from central headquarters every hour or every day. They operate independently, and if something happens, they can adapt. 
This is simply not the case with Russian forces. Um, and um, that, that makes them very inflexible and makes them prone to high casualties. Um, uh, just lack of discipline. One example, the, when, you, when Ukraine sends out these um, surveillance drones to, find, to locate where Russians are, are holed up in trenches, um, and then they send artillery or other drones to attack them, one way they find these Russians is just huge amounts of litter scattered everywhere. <laughs> Um, I mean, you know, just, I mean, there's like loads of stuff over the field. Mm, mm. I mean, what, <laughs> giving yourselves away, there's like a lot, and this, this countless examples of this. There was one, one video I saw of a drone attack on, on a Russian tank. Why did they find it? 15 Russians were sat on top of a tank at night watching a video. This surveillance found them and they just slammed that tank. They were all dead. I mean, I mean, go. You know, hide in the forest or something. Watch the video separately. It's so this kind of clumbliness, I guess. A lot of Russians uh, use their mobile phones to ring home to wives, girlfriends, family. And the Ukraine Secret Service, the SBU, tapes a lot of these calls and then releases them. And it's mind-boggling some of the stuff they talk about. But one of the things they talk about a lot is the incompetence of Russian officers, their corruption and cowardness. So if you combine all of that together, you get very low morale on the Russian side, very high morale on the Ukrainian. The more Russians hit missiles, the more war crimes are found on the Ukrainian side. That just increases the morale of Ukrainian soldiers. Um, so there you have, there you have it. Um, Russia simply is um, unable to fight Ukraine in the field and hence, it's, it resorts to terror tactics, like in Syria. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, I mean, you just touched upon it with the war crimes. I mean, mass graves have been discovered in towns that have been liberated from Russian occupation. You know, what have we learned about how Russia is treating civilians in captured areas? Well, it treats them... Um, this is The Russian army today is basically the same Soviet army that raped and pillaged across Poland and Eastern Germany in 1944-45. There's no real difference. They haven't changed. And the reason they haven't changed is because under Putin, um, Russia went through a re-Sovietization of the regime um, and, um, and also a cult of Joseph Stalin. So it was the cult of war, a cult of bloodshed, a cult of, 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 of kind of military pompousness. And it's the exact opposite of what happened in Ukraine and other sort of more pro-Western leaning post-communist states where Europeanization completely changes the mentality of people. Ukraine's gone through um, decommunization, de-Sovietization. Um, the difference between Ukraine and Russia is that in Ukraine, Stalin is regarded as a criminal by a majority of people, and Russia is regarded as a hero. Um, can you imagine um, um, if, like, three decades after World War II, if an ex-Gestapo officer took power in Germany and launched a cult of Adolf Hitler? Well, you've got an ex-KGB officer in power in Russia who's launched the cult of Stalin. So that cult of violence, cult of bloodshed, impacts upon the population. Added to that, you have, you've had about 15 years of what I would call dehumanization of Ukraine and Ukrainians in the Russian media. From about the Orange Revolution of 2004, um, there's been constant propaganda in the Russian media, particularly on Russian TV, that Ukraine doesn't exist, it's an artificial country propped up by America, that Ukrainians are a branch of the Russian nation, 
and those who disagree with that are all a bunch of Nazis. Um, and this is being pumped into people. It's been spread in schools. It's been promoted in amongst Russian conscripts in the army. So with that attitude, they're coming into Ukraine and they're not treating Ukrainians as human beings. They're, they're subhuman. Um, prior to the Holocaust and prior to the Ukrainian famine of 33, the Holodomor, there was at least a decade of that dehumanization. You need to dehumanize the, the, the perceived enemy before you then um, are able sort of to then kill them because you're not really killing human beings, as it were. You're, you're, you're killing subhumans. Um, I mean, that, that's what happened in both of those cases. And this is what happened in, in the case of Russia. So when they've occupied areas, in every occasion, there's been rapes. The UN reported a few weeks ago in a major report on these war crimes that raping in Ukraine by Russian forces has ranged from the ages of four. Wow. Did everybody hear that? Age of four years old yeah. to 82. It's just barbaric, um, simply barbaric. Um, pedophilia, mass rapes, older women. And we know that when that is done, it's not just a question of um, sexual fantasies. This is also a tactic of war. It's a way to put down the population, make them feel um, just... And because many women who are raped in wartime situations don't want to talk about it. So they're psychologically destroyed by that. Um, and, you know, these divorces and things like that. Is that a, an official tactic, do you think? You're never going to see, you're never going to see a, a Putin decree saying to do this, of course. Um, but, but certainly many of the taped recordings of uh, Russian soldiers and also interviews with prisoners of war say that they were told to do this by their officers. Wow. There's also sometimes an ethnic element, because in the Kiev region, there were a lot of uh, Russian troops from Buryatia, and so maybe they're encouraged to do this. This is your chance to you know, rape uh, uh, Christian women. There's also that probably thrown in. Um, they, and, and in that sense, that's similar to Yugoslavia, where Serbs did that in, against Bosnian women. Um, so the the raping is 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 too widespread to assume it's just a one off case in mm. different places. It's happened everywhere uh, where Russian forces have occupied. There was also that dreadful castration video, and I don't know how common that is, but that was appalling. Yeah, the, the castration, and even what even I've seen even seen a video of one case of beheading. A head was put on a spike wow. of the of the Ukraine prisoners of war, and you add to that massive looting. I mean, the looting is. Again, similar to the Soviet army in, in World War II, um, it's partly theft, but also partly survival because their logistics are not working. And simply, they were just starving in the Kiev region, so they went to shops and just looted them. They had no food supplied to them by the Russian government. There is an amusing side to this because a lot of this loot was then taken to Belarus when they retreated. Um, they sent it from Belarusian post offices back home, and then two-thirds of that was stolen on the way. <laughs> so that just shows you the rot in Russian society. It's literally from the top to the bottom of this. Um, and this has been created by a regime that came to power saying, we're going to be different to the Yeltsin Wild West of the 90s. Mm. And they haven't. In fact, the Russia of today is far more corrupt 
than the Russia in the 1990s. So, mm. um, but so um, what is difficult to understand these Russian nationalists who are complaining about the conduct of the Russian army is that have they just simply woken up today to understand that the reason why the Russian army is doing so badly in Ukraine, or one of the reasons, is because of the regime that they supported under Putin being so corrupt that that money was stolen from the Russian army. And it seems like they don't seem to get, they don't seem to add two and two and get four. They blame other factors when, in fact, the reason the reasons are quite simple to find. So looting, raping, um, no attempt to win the hearts and minds of people. Simply no attempt. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. I mean, that, that concept is just simply beyond them. Um, it's just terror tactics. Uh, torture, sometimes it's to, to find information. Um, about uh, Ukrainian forces, uh, or say the children, they they took. There was a case just in the Washington Post a few days ago where a um, 52 year old woman and her husband were tortured because their son was working in the Ukrainian secret service (SVU). Um, and other times, just pure purely for sadism, just purely to have to have to to, to uh, for for enjoyment, as it were. Um, now, they had the reason. One of the reasons they have a problem is that if you're an occupation force and you have no local support at all, even in so-called Russian-speaking areas where you, they thought they would certainly have that support, then then everybody's a potential enemy. I mean, there was a case in the Kiev region where one of the best scouts for the Ukrainian military was a. I think she was about 80, 80 years old, an old age pensioner. And every time Russian forces came through the village, she telephoned these through to, to the Ukraine military and they hit them with artillery. They, these soldiers never expected that 82, 80 year old woman to be a spy. Now, is she a spy? Is she a partisan? I don't know in how you define her, but you've got a situation where loads of people are doing that. And there's even Ukrainian government app called DIA to act where you could actually download information that you've seen of Russian movement of Russian forces. So in that situation, you're literally surrounded by enemies. Um, and that makes them paranoid. Uh, they don't feel comfortable at all in that environment. Well, you obviously didn't realize that Ukraine's a separate country. It's not little Russian. Mm, mm, mm. One one big thing then, I mean, with this with Putin's war on Ukraine, it feels it's really about him and his reputation and his holding on to power. So I suppose my question is multifold, really. It's sort of how far do you think Putin will go to get what he wants? And I suppose the second part of the question is if Putin is somehow disposed of or, I don't know, leaves or whatever, is there a positive future for Russia post-Putin? There's a, there's a number of questions here. Mm. Let me start first with the fact that even prior to the 2014 or the invasion, Russia was already a declining power. I mean, in compared to, say, yeah. uh, India or the other BRIC countries, particularly yeah. China, of course. Um, now, no Russians would accept that. They would say, no, no, we're still a great power. We have, And they claim they have the second best army in the world. Mm. Well, mm. what this invasion has shown is that Russia is a declining power, and Russia does not have a second best army in the world. Russia has a Potemkin great army. Um, and, and, and the sanctions and the huge numbers of destruction of Russian military equipment, 
I mean, we're talking about, I forget the numbers, but something up to 2,000 tanks being destroyed. I mean, you, I mean, there are people on Twitter who follow this on a daily basis of how much equipment has been destroyed. Uh, Russian soldiers and, Russian, and 1,200 Russian officers killed. Um, that wipes out um, a huge, what, makes the Russian military even worse than it already was. If, I mean, if Russia was to fight NATO now, it'd lose within a few days. Uh, with what, what it's got left, is pulling out tanks that are vintage era from the 60s and 70s. It's that better situation. Wow. So Western sanctions combined with that, you know, Russia's decoupling from the globalized economy, all of that is simply going to make Russia slide even further downwards as a great power. This is great for China. China simply has no competition now in its rise as a, as a, as a great power. Russia today is China's younger brother. There's simply no question about it. What you've seen in Eurasia in the last um, few months, um, and remember that um, uh, Russia since the early 90s, not under Putin, or already under Yeltsin, uh, is, I think they first raised it in 1993, they demanded always that the West recognize Eurasia as Russia's exclusive sphere of influence. That meant no NATO, no EU enlargement into that area, and no UN peacekeepers. We would do the so-called peacekeeper. Um, now, Russia as a Eurasian power is, is gone. Um, the only two countries left in Eurasia, which are Russian satellites, are Armenia and Belarus. Um, Central Asia is now under Chinese influence. Just look at, take a look at Kazakhstan, how it snubbed Russia in the last few months. Um, in particular, um, and Azerbaijan has a long-standing relationship with Turkey. Turkey helped its, its be victorious in its war against Armenia. Um, Georgia is alongside Ukraine and Moldova with Europe. Um, so there's only Armenia in the South Caucasus. Um, so that's it. So this Russian sort of empire or sphere of influence in Eurasia is gone. Yeah. Um, it's only, and I think, it's only a matter of time for Armenia. To, to jump ship, and I'm hoping they, they do, because they are a democratic country. Lukashenko's got nowhere else to go, like Kadyrov in Chechnya. And he's, he, his fate, their fates are bound up with Putin. Um, Putin, um, well, everything changed three years ago. 2020, constitutional reforms made Putin president for life, de facto. Um, his um, presidency was extended to until 2036, but de facto, he was president for life. And what that what changed in Russia then was that Russia moved from a collective leadership, which in the Soviet Union we saw under Brezhnev and those kind of leaders, to a dictatorship. So more towards a Stalinist type of, of uh, Russia, um, with no collective leadership. Uh, experts on the Russian security services now talk of the FSB resembling the NKVD under Stalin, no longer the KGB under Brezhnev. So with, with, with Putin um, becoming a, a de facto president for life, Russia moves from an authoritarian system to a dictatorship, and, and, and some even call it a totalitarian system, massive repression domestically, everything's snubbed out, Navalny goes to jail, etc., uh, all the Russian, any, anything that's left in the Russian independent media is snubbed out. That in turn impacts upon external um, aggression. Um, you have internal aggression against your own people and you have external aggression against Ukraine. 
the two are closely interconnected. Some would say Russia has even become a fascist state, and that's gaining a lot of prominence. I remember back this debate back to 2015, 2016, when many were opposed to calling Russia a fascist state. That is less the case today. With this sort of this hypermobilization around the symbol Z uh, for the in support of the invasion, looks very, very much like 1930s Germany. Um, so um, yes. Putin um, is, in many ways, uh, his fate is completely tied to the fate of this war. Um, if there's, I think, even one more military defeat, uh, either in the Donbass or in Kherson in particular, I find it difficult to see how Putin can survive. So he is literally um, holding on by his fingernails. Um, after the after the Kharkiv successful military operation, which was a shock to Russians, um, Putin had to do something very quickly, otherwise he was going to be kicked out of power. Um, he's a natural leader. Rem let's remember his, you know, his funny photographs oh, of yeah. him riding horses with no shirt yeah, on, yeah. which I could always imagine. I said, if my dad did that at the age of sixty-five, I would disown him. Um, I mean. He no longer does that. Maybe he's put on weight. Um, but but um, you can't look weak if you're a macho dictator. So um, after Harakiv, he had to do something to toughen up, to, to show he's still there, the macho is still there. And he did that with the partial mobilization and with the so-called sham referendums on annexing four Ukrainian regions. Um, these were signs of weakness, not strength. Um, the partial mobilization was inevitably going to be a problem because until the partial, so-called partial mobilization, Russians had basically um, hidden the war from themselves by seeing it on TV, but, but sitting on their sofas, not, not getting involved. The war was far away. They just didn't want to know about it. Um, they gave support. To it, as long as it didn't affect them personally. Um, I now it's affected them personally. They could be drafted. They could be killed. I just saw a video this week of a Russian um, soldier who was mobilized, and eleven days later, he was a prisoner in Ukraine. Um, he had two days training. Two days training. Um, so what has happened? Seven hundred thousand Russians have fled. Um, now, if you think about it, 300,000 are mobilized, 700,000 have fled. I mean, that tells you a lot. Um, so they they didn't want to oppose the regime. Uh, they didn't think there was an opportunity to oppose the regime. I'm quite critical of that. And if the Iranians can do it, why can't the Russians? Um, so they instead fled, in particular, to places like Armenia and Georgia, um, where which are democratic states, where they could oppose the regime. But anyway, they fled. I think Putin wanted them to flee. It's better that they're abroad as opposed to causing trouble at home. Um, so they've mobilized 300,000. But, but I mean, this is where the problem of corruption comes in again. If you don't have the logist logistics operation in place to supply troops, which are only 175,000 strong, how the hell do you have logistics to supply troops, which are going to be 300,000 more? Is this simply not possible? And so I predict that this winter is going to be a disaster for Russia because those troops are going to freeze 
themselves in those trenches. They don't have warm tents. They don't have warm clothing, warm winter clothing. They don't have proper food supply. They're hated by the locals. Ukraine has oil thirsty. It has support from the locals in every way you can think of. Um, it, it will be supplied with, it's already been supplied with warm winter clothing by NATO countries. And it has warm, warm tents and places to stay. You know, civilians will let them in. So I think that's going to be a disaster. And it's just basically cannon fodder for, for Putin's, um, imperialism. Um, he doesn't care. He's a sociopath. Doesn't care about the number of lives that killed, either Russian or non-Russian. We've known that from day one of 22 years ago. Um, if we recall, in the first year of Putin's presidency, the Kursk submarine went down, and he he, re he rejected Norwegian and British offers of help for the submarine and allowed 200 sailors to die. So it's nothing unusual there. So he just wants those that cannon fodder to basically pad out the trenches and to try to hold the Ukrainians who have the initiative now from moving forward. But they're just going to be huge numbers. They're going to get just going to get killed. All of going to, many of them are going to surrender. Ukraine has a system in place where they're paid money if they surrender, particularly with their equipment, military equipment, which is, I think, a very good, very good way of, of, of encouraging dissent within those Russian, Russian troops. Once they um, hit those trenches and they find out well, they've already seen they get very little training. Their weapons are often really bad condition. Some of them are from Afghanistan in the 80s. Um, and then they send them, there's no logistics to back them up. I mean, many of them will say, hey, this is a waste of time. I'm not going to get killed for this. So Putin's fate is very much tied to the outcome of this war. We, and, 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 and a war that he started, he's linked to. Um, you're right to wonder where this will lead. Um, and there are a number of reasons for this. In, in communist states and post-communist states, there's no tradition of military coups. That's something in Southern Europe, Latin America, but you don't have that in Eastern Europe and former Soviet Union. There's just one example where that's the case, and that's 81 in Poland. But on the whole, there isn't that tradition. And I think many of those Russian security and military officers are very much tied to the hip, as it were, to Putin. But I don't see how Putin can survive if he if there are more defeats. And um, and if he goes, if he somehow, for example, falls out of a window, which seems to be very common in Russia, then who's going to take over? Well, it's not going to be a Democrat. I mean, let's not be completely idealistic. Uh, Russian Democrats are not going to come to power. Um, and Navalny is a moderate nationalist anyway, but I just don't see him becoming the next Russian leader. So the next person who's coming to power is going to be also a nationalist. But what I think it would be the case is that that was more likely to be some kind of pragmatic nationalist who will say, it's his fault, blame, so they blame it all on Putin, which we know, which we know is rubbish, of course, but blame it all on Putin. Um, and we'll try to patch up relations with the West to get rid of sanctions and to try and do some deal on Ukraine, or wherever that means. Um, I don't, it's difficult to imagine that if somebody takes over, even if they're a nationalist and they say, let's continue. Because I think the, the psychological impact of Putin going would have, would be such a shock to the Russian society that they would go, hold on, there's something 
we need to maybe change course here. I mean, that would be my view. Of course, there are more doomsday views, in particular about the use of nuclear weapons, but most kind of leading experts on this um, find it difficult to get their heads around the, the, the use of a tactical nuclear weapon. Because we're not talking about strategic, we're talking about tactical nuclear weapons. Because it doesn't bring any battle, battlefield um, successes to Russia. If they use a new tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine, that does not help them on the battlefield. All it does is, is it, 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 it's basically those missiles they're firing on steroids. It, it's, it's a sort of an added attempt at terrorizing the population. But it won't stop Ukraine from conducting its military campaign. Um, and, and, and the problem with using something like that as well is that you could kill your own troops. I mean, you know, unless you find just a, a pure Ukraine military base. Um, and some of that radiation could go into Belarus or Russia, depending on where the winds are blowing. So, and the final factor linked to that is we are, we, I mean, there's a lot we don't know, of course, um, what the Americans have threatened the Russians with if they do launch a tactical nuclear weapon. Um, NATO could not stand by. If NATO stood by, it would look very weak. So NATO or the Americans working through NATO would have to do something. And the kind of things that we've heard rumors about are that America would, would retaliate with devastating conventional weapons, not nuclear, conventional, um, and would destroy Ru Russian forces in Ukraine and the Russian Black Sea Fleet. Um, which would mean then that if Russia used a tactical nuclear weapon, Ukraine would win the war. Yeah. Because the Russian army would be finished. Mm. So I don't see the rationale. Now, what we should be careful of is that using Western rationality in applying that to Putin. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> That's where my argument could 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 fall away, as it were. But so I'm I don't think that that uh, tactical nuclear weapons are likely. Now, the West, as of today, is particularly Germany and the US, are talking about sending, finally sending, air defense um, equipment to Ukraine. That's important. I mean, Ukraine's have been asking for this for months. I don't know why they haven't been sent. Israel has been a big disappointment because Israel has not wanted to send its, its air defense systems either. Do you have any thoughts on why Israel aren't really contributing is it they're too close to russia or for one thing you have a jewish ukrainian president secondly you have the biggest jewish revival in europe taking place in ukraine in the city of Dnipropetrovsk since 1991 and every year 30,000 jews uh hasidic jews come to ukraine for a festival in september so this is the biggest festival outside israel of, of where jews get together so it is rather strange and the only argument that i've heard from israelis of why they have refused to sell or support you sell arms or support Ukraine is because of Russia's presence in Syria. But I think that's a cop-out. I think it's a real cop-out. Because, for example, Israel and Azerbaijan had a very close strategic relationship, and Israel sells everything it wants to Azerbaijan. Why? Because Azerbaijan's on Iran's border. And so there's a clear strategic partnership against Iran. And Azerbaijan is a very secular although Shiite, but very secular society. Um, so there's a great close relationship, but they're not willing to sell those, in particular to the Iron Dome air defense system, they're not willing to sell them to Ukraine. So I think that Israel is one of the number of countries which are a disappointment to Ukraine. But if 
if and when, and they're saying it should be happening in the next few days, American and German air defense systems go to Ukraine, the point of this is going to be that then that blunts the ability of Russia to use missiles to terrorize the population. So what's Russia got left then? It can't fight Ukraines in, in the battlefield. Soldiers are scared to do that. It's casualties are too high. It, then it won't be able to use its missiles to terrorize the population. It's, I think it's on, you're on a slippery slope to defeat. And you add, add to that the complications I've already talked about over winter. I can't see this war not finishing in 2023. The former U.S. commander in Europe, Ben Hodges, thinks that uh, Ukraine will be in Crimea by summer of next year. Thank you so much for all that, because that's been really fascinating. Is there anything else that's important to you that you'd like to discuss that we haven't touched upon today? Well, I, I think there's a, probably two things. Mm. I mean, you've you mentioned about the uh, Russian intelligence services. Um, I think it's one of the mistakes, another mistake of Western experts is to assume these are intelligence agents. They're not. Not when you compare them to CIA, FBI, or, or MI5, MI6. They're corrupt institutions. So their primary purpose is corruption. They also have very, very misconstrued views of the outside world. So they don't get it. They don't understand Ukraine. They don't understand Russia's neighbors in Eurasia. And they certainly don't understand the West. So one of the major uh, problems that the Russian Russia has faced in this war is that they misunderstood Ukrainian reaction to the war and they misunderstood Western reaction. Now, that's the fault of intelligence agencies. I mean, they simply, I think, are very, very bad. I mean, they, they got a lot of money prior to the invasion, the Russian intelligence services, to, to bribe Ukrainians and to, to recruit uh, spies in Ukraine. That money was stolen. And when it was given, what was left that wasn't stolen, given to the Ukrainians, they stole it. <laughs> and they basically told the Russian intelligence services what they wanted to hear. So it was a complete mess. So then, then these Russian intelligence agencies pass this information upwards to Putin and tell him what he wants to hear. Because you're not going to tell Putin, hold on, I think uh, this is not a great idea because you're on the first train to Siberia. Yeah. So... Um, again, you have the classic problem of, of a dictatorship, that nobody wants to tell a dictator bad news. And so you've got this hierarchical problem of simply bad information, bad lack of intelligence. So I think we need to have a different viewpoint of how we look at these so-called Russian intelligence services, because they're not good. They're actually shown in Ukraine to be actually very, very poor structures and I think very low IQ officers and simply they don't understand how the world operates, how the West operates. I mean, they're, they were absolutely convinced that the West would be weak, divided, um, and simply easy to deal with as it was in 2014. So they've got that completely wrong. I think the second factor and finally, probably final factor is just the question of NATO. You now have a situation where one of the best, one of the best, or near the top of the best armies in Europe is Ukraine. Battle trained, battle experienced, Large military force, high military budget, um, which is not the case in NATO. There's still only about 12 out of 30 NATO members uh, spend 2% of GDP, a requirement since 2006. And so I think Ukraine has deserved its place as a member of NATO. NATO has been promising to bring in Ukraine um, since 2008. It's, it's, it's actually, I think, sent a lot of confusing signals about that. Um, Finland and Sweden were 
I'll invite you to join within a few days. I think Ukraine has earned its place. And let's not go into the arguments used against that in the past were always that um, there's not enough support in eastern Ukraine for NATO membership. That's no longer the case. Opinion polls now show East Ukrainians support NATO membership as much as West Ukrainians. And the second argument was that we can't promote Russia. Well, I'm sorry, Russia's already done that. Yeah. So the third argument, and again, it's interesting here, is that, well, you can't really invite countries in where some of their territory is occupied. You've obviously forgotten your own history. West Germany was invited to join NATO in the 50s when East Germany was under Soviet occupation. Germany wasn't, um, wasn't a unified country until 1990. So, and he was allowed to join NATO. Cyprus was allowed to join the EU, and northern Cyprus is occupied by Turkey. So, let's not use double standards when applied to Ukraine. I think Ukraine is defending Europe against Russia. If Ukraine fails, if Ukraine is defeated, I don't think it will be, then next is NATO. Yeah. Direct war with NATO. Yeah. Baltic states, Poland, um, maybe elsewhere. So, I think Ukraine has won its place inside NATO. Thank you. Yeah, rightly so. Thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed that. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much for inviting me and stay tuned because this war will still have, still go on at least until next year. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. 